Welcome to Aging in Style with me, Lori Williams. I'm an optimist by nature, and I believe you can follow your dreams at any age. My grandmother's journey with dementia ignited a passion in me to work with seniors. I've spent the past 13 years learning about seniors and aging. In my mid-50s, I followed my own dream and founded my company, where I use my expertise to help seniors locate housing and resources. On this podcast, we cover all aspects of aging. Join us each week to meet senior living experts and inspirational seniors who are following their dreams. The fact is, we're all aging, so why not do it in style? Hi, welcome back to today's episode of Aging in Style with Lori Williams. Today we are talking about a trend that we have seen, which is people wanting a smaller assisted living experience versus one of the you know larger communities. And we've talked before about residential care homes and what they are, but we're going to expand on that a bit today with our guest. So today um, our guest is Lo Hornbuckle. He's the CEO and founder of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. Um, It was founded in 2015, and Sage Oak isn't just another assisted living company. It is the boutique assisted living company. Uh, With five locations in Dallas, Sage Oak provides small, intimate home settings that allow those who need a little extra care to receive the love and dignity that they deserve. And Sage Oak has also built two ground up or in the process of building two ground up boutique assisted living memory care developments, one in Texas and one in Louisiana. So welcome, Lo. I'm glad you're on the show today. Yeah, really excited to be here. And it's so great for us to finally connect. Yeah, absolutely. So I always like to ask my guests, what drew you into senior living? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think something that's really important for folks in this business, because I think someone's why is probably the most important reason to sustain them. And, and what I see is a, a difficult business, right? Obviously, it's a calling, but taking care of people can over 24 hours a day can be a difficult task. So for me, I got into the business mostly because, you know, I, I thought it was a good business. But what was crazy was about a year prior to getting into the business, uh, my dad uh, passed away. He was on hospice and he had a really bad experience. And I spent the better part of a year trying to figure out if I wanted to sue the hospice company. And around the time that that kind of statute of limitations for that process kind of ended, um, I sort of stumbled into this business opportunity. And, you know, I think I was analyzing it. I think it was one of those situations where, you know, consciously I was thinking about it from like, a, okay, this is a business. And then when I got into the business, all those emotions and all those feelings started to kind of pop up for me. So, you know, I really got into the business because of my dad, even if at the time I didn't, I didn't know it. You know, I was just like, I was just being pulled in this direction because uh, in 2013, I was, I was managing a car dealership. So it was definitely, a, you know, not a traditional route into dementia care, right? You know, selling warranties on Hondas to taking care of people with dementia in the span of 18 months is a pretty, pretty interesting timeline. So that's really what happened to me was that, uh, you know, my dad kind of inspired me to uh, not, not want to have families kind of go through what we did. I think that's great. And I think you hit it right on the you know nail on the head that people, for the most part, who work in this industry, it is a calling and it is a passion because it's not always easy. And there's a lot of um, emotional attachments we form with seniors and we want to do our best for the seniors. So I agree that it really is, is a calling. Can you tell us what the differences are between these smaller type assisted livings or care homes? And then, you know, what the difference between those are between that in the larger traditional type assisted livings? Sure. So what I would say is, is that there really are a few different product classes and I'm, I'm involved in two of the product classes. So on one end of the spectrum, you have the very large, you know, 100 bed, 200 bed facilities. 
Um, these are, you know, all typically in one building and it's what people think about when they think about, you know, assisted living or memory care. Sometimes they think about a nursing home, but the key is, is that it's a pretty large facility. It's all under one building, generally, you know, one licensure, you know, things like that. And on the other end of the spectrum, you kind of have this sort of mom and pop, you know, maybe someone owns one care home or two care homes. Um, and honestly, I think there's probably decent problems with both models. Um, and uh, having been an operator of several RAL communities, I can kind of talk about that a little bit. There's very little debate inside of, you know, our, our community about which one produces better outcomes. For the most part, most people are pretty firmly in the corner that you're going to have better outcomes in terms of, you know, uh, quality of food, you know, in terms of quality of attention, individualization, uh, less confusion for someone that has cognitive impairment, right? Because there's no long hallways, it's a home, it feels more familiar, you know, the kitchen's open. So, you know, they're, the bacon sizzling in the morning, the coffee's percolating, it's an anchoring device. But, but the problem with uh, residential assisted living or care homes is they don't really have a lot of scaling. You know, you never quite have enough people. It's very rare you'll go to a care home that'll have an activities coordinator. It's very rare you'll go to a care home that has transportation. Um, and so care homes are often, you know, people wearing many hats, um, you know, doing the job. And that's good, except that when you have a one person wearing a lot of hats, you do kind of have single point of failure sometimes, right? You've probably seen care homes before that run really well, and then the owner gets sick or the owner gets burned out, and then kind of quality goes down, or even they have a loss of quality for two weeks while they're on vacation. You know, on the other end of the spectrum, the, the big box has, uh, you know, some incredible advantages, you know, in terms of, you know, access to financing, they have incredible advantages in terms of scaling, they can purchase things at a reduced price, they, you know, have transportation, they have these silos where they have housekeeping and meal service and all these things, but the outcomes aren't that great and not everybody really should be in those places and the physical plan is challenging, right? It can be really long hallways, things like that. So I think care homes will always produce better outcomes. And I think that big box will always have scaling advantages. And for certain types of people that are very extroverted, that want to, you know, maybe they're not super dependent, they're fairly independent. They want to, you know, go out on field trips with their friends. Those can be really, really awesome places. Um, but for high acuity residents, there's a real challenge. So I think there's challenges with both models. And so while I think, you know, I, I would probably never build, build a big box facility, we did want to tap into the scaling advantages that come with a big building. And of course, the permutation, the combination for us is we build, we build campuses of care homes. And the reason we have, you know, five or six homes in the Dallas area is because you need that many homes, in, in my opinion, to have the scaling necessary so that it's not just the owner basically, you know, pouring themselves into the business day in and day out, because that, to me, that's not sustainable. And so for us, the, 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 the best model is basically a bunch of care homes on a campus. So you get all the scaling of a big building, but you get the better outcomes and the individualization that comes with, uh, with, with a care home model. Mm -hmm. And I think for people who maybe have not listened to our podcast about care homes, let's kind of define a little more what a, what a care home is. So, I mean, it's, it's a house in a neighborhood that has been completed so that it they've gone back and retrofitted it basically so that you have wider doorways. Everything is set up for seniors. You have the bathroom is set for seniors, the shower. You want to tell us a little more about your care homes and how you have um, changed them from just a regular home into a care home? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we, we have uh, five homes now that we operate, one that we've leased to another operator. There's a mix of care homes that we've designed and a mix of care homes that we've purchased. 
Obviously, you're sort of limited on some of the renovations you can do when they're currently occupied and you need to have a functioning kitchen during that transition period. Our care homes are all pretty different. Um, you know, the ones we design, we definitely place an emphasis on private private bathrooms. You know, that's something that a lot of care homes, typically what you'll see. So I guess to define it, I would say typically you're going to see eight to 12 beds, maybe six to 12 beds would kind of be a traditional care home. In Texas, you, as long as you stay under 16, 16 and under, then you're in the same licensure bracket. Um, and so 17 and up is, is when the definitional change happens with the state of Texas. Um, so our care homes in Dallas, they're, they're fantastic. They do an awesome job. Um, you know, we have some really beautiful buildings and some amazing locations. We have some buildings that are not quite as pretty because they've been an operating care home for 10 years. And so they sort of serve a, a slightly different demographic than say some of our super premium homes, which have been fully remodeled. And, you know, I think the probably the common tie that binds is they're all in really nice areas of Dallas. Um, so, you know, we have one house that's, you know, a couple, couple blocks from White Rock Lake. You know, we've got three houses that are in the same zip code that, you know, President Bush calls home. So, you know, there's a lot of nice uh, opportunities there in terms of the location, because a lot of times what people want is they want a 10, 15 minute easy uh, process to get in to uh, visit their loved one. And so, you know, when you're in the nicer areas and obviously um, your, your clients that can can afford services are much more likely to be close by or um, we even have a, a tour, uh, you know, depending on when this is being aired, we have a tour of a person who's literally able to walk to a care home and she won't consider any of our other care homes because she's inside the neighborhood of, of one of our care homes. So very, very much a location focused uh, type of business. They're all eight bed facilities, um, you know, so, so you'll, you'll never really have to be around more than seven other people. And from a ratio perspective, we have, uh, you know, a one to four ratio during the day and a one to eight ratio at night, which is allows us to sort of handle residents with higher needs, you know, higher acuity, you know, slightly more complex medical stuff we can handle because, because um, we have enough staff to, to oversee that. Yeah. And I mean, I think the families that we work with who choose the residential care homes, they, they like that staffing ratio because their loved one is going to get, you know, more one-on-one care. Um, they'd like to feel that it is a home environment. It's not, you know, it doesn't feel like it's an institution, if you will, but they'd like sure. that really warm, um, caring feeling like they're at home, especially if they have dementia. I, you know, a lot of times I find it's less confusing, especially if they've always, they've been home the entire time and now they've just transitioned into senior living. So um, it does make for an easier transition. We saw this through COVID in the past year that we had a lot of families choose to move away from the larger places and move to the care homes. And a lot of that was obviously there weren't as many people. So they felt safer for sure, you know, for not getting um, COVID. And then also it seemed it was a little easier to cut through and, and do some I guess, visiting, if you will, maybe if it was just a window visit or whatever, it's a lot easier in a house. And if you're in a big building to do some sort of uh, visiting with your family member, tell us about how COVID affected y'all and what you've seen since this happened. Yeah. So I guess I can answer the question in a couple of ways. So the first is, I think you're right. And, and keep in mind, there actually was, a, there's, there's a couple of mathematical reasons um, to, to explain the num, you know, the anecdotal evidence that care homes did better in COVID. There's actually a couple of uh, math reasons. So first off, let's say you have, you know, like us, five care homes, eight beds, right? Well, compared to say a 40 bed facility, same number of residents, same number of beds, we have five front doors, they have one front door. And the whole key to COVID is, is to, to not let it in the front door in a place when it has a chance to, to spread. And so obviously you have a reduction in harm in the sense that you have less, less visitors, um, you know, because you can expose 40 residents to 40 visitors, or you can expose 
40, uh, you know, eight residents to, you know, one fifth the number of visitors. And so it just is a much smaller opportunity for, uh, for sure to come to the front door and increases infection control. Additionally, of course, if you were to have an outbreak, you can confine it in theory to one house versus the whole building. But the other thing is uh, during, during some of the visitation um, rules that Texas put into place, one of the, uh, one of the standards was if you had an active COVID case, then visitation was shut down. And so the math is simple. If you have eight residents versus 80 residents, it's a much higher probability that you would have an active COVID case in 80 versus eight. And so there were facilities that don't, even though the visitation was open, they never in effect were allowed to have visitation because they always had an active case or they always had a staff member that was active or whatever the case may be. And so there definitely there was some math behind that that actually made visitation better. Um, we had some people that moved out of big buildings that were allowing visitation, but could never actually get to a zero case environment to actually let visitation occur uh, per state rules. As far as how it affected us, I mean, you know, we were we were very fortunate, um, you know, being on the development side, we, we sort of pay attention to supply chains. And so we sort of saw there was some things kind of rumbling in, in China when it was kind of, a, you know, Nobody's really talking about it in you know, late January, and we started taking action late January, early February, um, and so we were able to secure PPE a little earlier uh, and do some of that type of stuff. But it was very hard on our team. I mean, we had no cases of COVID in our Dallas operation. We're one of the few companies that, that can say that. We were at 100% occupancy going in. Um, but the experience that we had was we realized in some ways that the visitation ban, which I think was in effect for 130 or 140 days by the state of Texas, um, that, that in some ways was worse than, than the virus because we had a lot of seniors. Uh, we had a, a very high rate of death amongst our dementia population because they felt isolated and lonely. And they, you know, they couldn't understand or couldn't process necessarily there was a pandemic. They just felt abandoned by their family. And there was only so much you could do with, you know, FaceTime and window visits to sort of bridge that gap. So, you know, I think what we learned is visitation is really important um, and, you know, creating an environment that's uh, protective of COVID um, is certainly going to be important. And look, it's been true for a long time. Dallas has had norovirus outbreaks. We, we've seen situations where, you know, nursing homes have shut down during flu season, you know, so good infection control. Um, it certainly uh, is important whether or not you're in a pandemic, whether or not you're dealing with COVID, you know, it can be important in other situations as well. So, you know, I think the infection control piece of our model is just a huge advantage. Um, you know, if you're flipping a coin, like I can't decide between a big building and a small building, the exponential greater risk of infection and the exponential greater risk of, of death uh, from infection would seem to, you know, make that, that coin flip an easier decision, in my, in my opinion. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The other thing I want to kind of switch to your other model that you are you're building one in Denton outside mm-hmm. Dallas, and um, it's going to be more like a campus type situation, several homes. And you've done the same in Louisiana. So tell us about this new model that you're you're building. Yeah. So, you know, I've always had a, an interest in, in design. And so I wanted to build a ground up facility. Um, I wanted to build a purpose built facility because, you know, when you're renovating houses, we can do a great job. But ultimately, you, you're going to have some limitations based on that. So the number one thing we wanted to do is we wanted to design a, a building that had really smart, well thought out sight lines. So I think our campus, there are other campuses out there. There are other companies that have done campuses before. I identified a, a few ways I thought that those models could be improved. So the first thing is, when you pull up to the campus, there's a central sales and admin office. Um, the reason why that matters is because I think the most important part of the tour isn't the building. It's the conversation you have with the family or with the resident about their needs, what they're going through. And so a good tour, in my opinion, if it lasts an hour and a half, an hour and 15 minutes is 
sitting down belly to belly, getting to understand, you know, what, what their needs are. Because in my opinion, you know, uh, prescription about diagnosis is malpractice, right? So, so many people are trying to offer themselves a solution. How can they when they don't know the resident's needs, the family's needs, things like that? So, the central sales and admin office is amazing because you can sit down, have a nice conversation before you ever step foot in a facility. And so, that makes a huge difference. Um, the second thing that we did is um, our houses, you have to kind of picture uh, an H shape. And in the center, the H is very fat. And then there, there are quadrants of bedrooms. So each house is a 16-bed facility with four four-bedroom quadrants. What that does is effectively means that our longest hallway is only about 50 feet. And so if you're in the common area, you know, you, all you have to do is go to, go to one hallway, you turn left or right, and then your bedroom, if it's the farthest bedroom, is only about 50 feet away. And so that helps a lot with people that have mobility impairment. It helps draw them out of their room because now it's not such a, you know, you see oftentimes in big buildings, 100, 150 yard hallways, they got to go down to an elevator and then come around and go to dining. And that can be a pretty daunting task in some cases. For those that are cognitively impaired, it can be confusing, right? And so that's why you have these memory boxes is to try to cue residents like, hey, this is where you live because they all kind of look the same when you're out in the hallway. Um, so we solve a lot of that stuff. The kitchen's open, the common area is a big open room. The nurse's station is, is got windows. And so you can literally be in the nurse's station charting or you're doing medication and you can see about 75, 80% of the common area, which means that you can kind of prevent falls and keep an eye on people. Um, you know, even when you're, when you're doing the necessary paperwork or the necessary charting that's, that's required. The other big element that we do is our houses. It's built like a neighborhood. So the houses back up to each other. We've seen some other communities that build the parking in the center and they all kind of face the parking. The problem is when you're standing there, it feels like a medical office. It, feel, it doesn't feel like a neighborhood. And so, you know, you can literally leave our campus and then go walk through the park. And it feels like, you know, when you pull up to it, it really looks indistinguishable from a regular neighborhood, save for the fact that the houses are, you know, 9,000 square feet instead of, you know, 3,000 square feet. And so that's kind of the model that we're building. We love that because, um, you know, we number one, we have the opportunity to deliver the outcomes that, that we insist upon. We still have the ratios. We still have the better outcomes, the reduced falls, the better meal service. But now we can have scaling. We can have an activities coordinator. We can have, you know, transportation. We can have, you know, all the things that you really love to have um, in any care home operation. Um, and so that that's a big, big part of it for us is we wanted to essentially use Dallas was kind of our laboratory. We wanted to go in and really learn the business. And, and, and in my opinion, a lot of the people that have built campuses before, um, I don't think they came from the care home world. I think they came from the big building world. And so the, when I walk around those campuses, what I see is a big building shrunken down, mm -hmm. right? And it, it feels like a shrunken down big building. That's not the thing we're after, right? The cheapest thing you could build from a building perspective is a rectangle. And then you can have a door on every side. And it's door, 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 door. But when you're in that, it doesn't feel like a home. And so we really, really wanted to purposefully design a product that not only had great sight lines and that, you know, the caregivers could, could be effective in and the residents would have an, a great experience, but that still feels like a home. Um, and so uh, that was a big part of what we were trying to do in Denton. And I really think that, you know, this campus model will catch fire and, you know, we're, we're really excited to continue to build these out all over North Texas because it's such a need. And while sometimes people think I'm anti-big building, I'm actually not. Um, I think big building has too much market share. There, there's a place for you know, the big buildings of the world. I just think that, that residents and families really should and demand additional choices because, you know, one thing we don't talk about much is introverts. There are people that just don't want to be around 100 other people. 
And, you know, a manageable number of people where it feels like maybe it's Thanksgiving every day, you know, there's 20 people in the house or 15 people in the house. That's a lot more manageable for some people than having a meal with 80 or 100 people. And so um, it really is a model that's, that's very needed. And, uh, you know, we're really excited to bring it to, to North Texas. Yeah, I'm excited for you to open as well. And and I agree. I mean, you, you need options. And I think it's important because some people do great in a big community and some yep. need something smaller. So it's great to to have those options out there. In those homes, will some be like assisted living only and others memory care only? Or are they combined? How are you? How is that set up? It's a great question. And actually, it could even go further than that. So our, our, our initial campus will be six homes and there'll be a combination of assisted living, luxury assisted living and memory care. Um, What the luxury assisted living and the memory care have in common is they will have a private chef. And so when you drive up on our campus, a traditional model to be one chef cooking for 80, we'll have, you know, five chefs cooking for 16 each. Um, And so the the base AL uh, will have uh, caregiver uh, preparing meals like you'd have in a more traditional uh, care home. It'll be a little bit more affordable. So we'll have a little bit more affordable price point to come into for families that, you know, maybe a little bit more budget conscious or less concerned about some of the some of the amenities. And then the luxury assisted living just has a little bit nicer finish out. And then it has that private chef being, you know, obviously having those those chef meals is is an awesome benefit. And then we also see the chef also from a, from a care perspective, because obviously if caregivers are not focused on food at any, any really point throughout the day, then, you know, then that's extra resources that can go into ADL care, extra resources that can go into, you know, psychosocial stimulation with visits and things like that. So that's kind of the the basic model. Uh, And then of course we have a memory care, which has a secured access control. You know, the fences are in place and memory care with, uh, with access control. So the AL campus, can flow. You can sort of move around the assisted living campus, you know, unfettered if you're a resident. And if you're in memory care, you have access to dedicated outdoor space um, so that you can still enjoy the outside, but then also we don't have the risk of elopement, you know, things like that. The, the thing that's really cool about, about Denton is we have, you know, four other pad sites available to build additional homes. And so in terms of, uh, in terms of different uh, subdividing groups, we could do uh, any kind of niche that um, the market would support. So for example, if you're like, Hey, I've got a rabbi, he wants a kosher home. Can you, can you take care of his flock? We can do that. You know, we can, you know, we can bring in a Hebrew newspaper, you know, we can do a house that focuses on Parkinson's, for example, and the caregivers have specialized training. We can do a house that focuses on diabetic meals, right? So we can do any, really any niche you can think of, um, even so much as we could do, you know, sports fans, you know, you could have a house that's all UT Longhorn fans and maybe they have dementia and we play the championship game every day. And so they're just happy every day because they're like, hey, we won the championship. And it's just over and over and over again. So there's mm-hmm. all kinds of really cool stuff you can do when you have the ability to, to really go after a niche. And so we can stay more mainstream and just do assisted living or memory care, you know, or we could have a house that has people with traumatic brain injuries and they're 30 years old and there's nowhere mm-hmm. for them to go. So we have a lot of unique niche opportunities. And so the additional phasing of Denton will mean that uh, the market will really tell us, hey, this is something that's missing. And then we can look to try to fill that uh, fill that void because we all know that there's all kinds of you know, we have park people with Parkinson's that maybe shouldn't be in memory care, but really can't be in assisted living. So there's a lot of examples where people are always kind of misplaced or they're not quite in the right, right setting. And so hopefully uh, if we can find then 15 friends, then we can create a setting that's specifically tailored to individuals' needs. That's great. I, I love that. So that's uh, definitely a need that I've not seen anyone um, address yet. So I like the whole idea of doing like a, a niche kind of community like that. 
I had read on LinkedIn, I think it was an article you had written, and you'd mentioned also about technology and senior living and that that's finally starting to kind of catch on. So talk to us a little bit about the technology and senior living and what you see that we're we're finally starting to see, but what the future is going to bring for technology. Yeah, so um, my friend uh, Dr. Bill Thomas, you know, he's, he was featured in uh, you know being mortal by Dr. Gawande, and he was the founder of the Greenhouse Project, which is basically small boutique nursing homes. It was really kind of the godfather of sort of bringing back small. If you really think about it, um, you know, small was what used to happen, right? It used to be, you know, you'd become widowed, and then you take a bunch of people in, and you run a boarding and care home, right? That was how we used to take care of people for a long time. You know, assisted living actually only started in like 81 or 82, 1981, 1982 in Oregon. So it's not a very old business. Um, so the smaller stuff is actually what the past was. So we're actually, you know, getting back to what's more normalized and, and sort of that. I think everyone thinks the big buildings are the normal thing, but they're actually actually quite the opposite. They're more of a new technology or a new concept. So as far as technology goes, Dr. Thomas and I both have said that we thought that uh, technology really hasn't fulfilled any of its promises and I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, so you have you have sort of caregivers who are not necessarily tech savvy, and then you have residents who often are not tech savvy. The exception is is that when the technology is stuff they use in their everyday life, they seem to adopt it and use it much better. So just like we saw during COVID, like FaceTime being a very effective tool, it's because people would use FaceTime prior to COVID. You know, the people that try to bring in the specialized pedestals and different things. A lot of that stuff didn't work very well. So I think the one thing that we're very bullish on from a technology perspective is telehealth, I think, is going to have a major impact. Um, you saw a lot of doctors move to, hey, I'm not going to do in-person visits. So that way I'm not a vector of the virus for long-term care facilities. And so telehealth was very effective. But the other thing is that we're doing in our communities, we kind of um, no one really talks about the infrastructure. So we actually are our own internet service provider. So most people sign a deal with you know AT and T or Time Warner or Spectrum or whoever, and they pay them for for service. We actually built out our own fiber infrastructure. So we actually are the internet service provider. And what that means is we can actually allocate bandwidth to various rooms. And what that means is is that what we're seeing now is a lot of the older buildings don't have the technology infrastructure to support multiple streaming devices because almost all residents are going to have a Netflix account or they're going to have a smart TV or they're going to have, you know, Bluetooth or they're going to have something. And so you see a lot of these other facilities where they struggle, no matter how good their Wi-Fi is, the, the, the cable coming in isn't big enough to support that much bandwidth use. And so we've actually got it set up now where I want to say it's between 20 and 25 uh, megs per room in bandwidth, which allows them to do the streaming and allows them to do those things. So our houses are really well future-proofed. So while we haven't necessarily fallen in love with a particular technology, um, if you think about you know being early in technology, if you stay in certain hotel rooms that have the iPod docking station, you know, you can just sort of tell like that hotel was built in like 06 to 07 mm-hmm. or something because they thought we were going to be using iPods for for this period of time. And of course, the iPod, you know, basically became integrated into the iPhone and, you know, who has an iPod anymore? So you really, from a technology perspective, from, from a development point of view, from an operations point of view, we just want to be future-proofed. You know, so we have Cat6 uh, running in, in all of our rooms. And then we have that dedicated uh, internet service provider uh, bandwidth that allows us to basically adapt to the thing. So a lot of our technology um, deals with bandwidth and a lot of our technology deals with basically being open that technology will bring in change, but that in the past, it's kind of failed to deliver much. Um, You know, there really hasn't been a lot of sweeping technology that's taken over senior housing. There's been a lot of effort, 
Um, but mm-hmm. adoption rates have been slow. Um, you know, I was on a call one time with a salesperson. We this one we did this hour-long pitch about I don't even remember what the technology was. But I just said at the end, I said, give me a list of five companies that are using it effectively so that I can talk to. You never follow back up. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is because they're, they don't understand. A lot of people that bring in technology don't really understand our environment. They don't really understand how dynamic it can be. They don't understand that, you know, a little thing, that, you know, a wearable is great if the resin doesn't take it off. You know, just like, you know, how many times we found hearing aids in the trash can or hearing <laughs> aids in the toilet or, you know, in a pocket. I mean, things get lost, things get damaged and uh, weird things happen. Um, so anybody that's ever had to deal with TV service in, in, in an assisted living or memory care, like a lot of times, like the TV's broken and you just got to go in and change the input or they, they push some weird button. And, and so TV technology has been around for a long time. And sometimes we struggle with that in our environment. So you can only imagine when you get a little bit more complicated or some little device you got to keep up with. So really, we're just kind of prepared for we know that there'll be technologies coming in. But it's a little premature, I think, to determine exactly what those technologies will look like. So we just want to make ourselves available to accept those technological changes. And so our buildings are kind of designed with the future in mind. Great. And I think that's really smart to do that. And and I think we're going to see more and more, especially after COVID and with people, um, you know, being so isolated. I, I definitely feel that we're going to see a lot more with technology. The last question I always like to conclude with is um, to ask if there's an inspirational senior in your life that you could tell us about. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot to choose from. Um, you know, I had, I had a lot of really great, great grandparents. So I hate to, I hate to single out any one of them, but uh, yeah, one of my one of my grandmothers, um, I called her Dandy, was was a really amazing woman. I mean, she was entrepreneurial. She was a nurse during, during World War II, and uh, she um, you know ran a clothing store. And she she was one of the most loyal, tough women that you could ever imagine. Uh, my other mother grandmother was too. I had I had some very salt of the earth, just like un, un, unbreakable uh, grandmothers in my life. And you know, obviously, I think about them a lot because uh, you know I learned a lot of lessons and values from their behavior and kind of how they handled things. And, and so I would definitely, I definitely give a hat tip to all of my grandparents, but, but certainly uh, my grandmother as well. Well, wonderful. And I'm sure you got the entrepreneurial spirit from her. <laughs> it was delayed. It, was t- it just took me 35 years to have the guts to do anything, right? Hey, that's, that's good. You jumped in and did it. So it doesn't matter what age you are. Hey, I was in, in my fifties before I did this. Awesome. <laughs> it's just good to, to do it. Um, well, thank you so much for being on and how can people reach you? What is your website? Yeah. So um, probably the easiest thing to do if they're interested in Denton, um, the website is the Sage Denton. Um, so T H E S A G E O A K Denton, D E N T O N.com. And then our Dallas operations, the Sage um, and then they can just email me at low at the sageoak.com if they're interested in, you know, employment opportunities, or if they're interested in, you know, maybe looking for care for a loved one. And we also do uh, have investment opportunities for folks that are interested in this business, but don't want to don't want to run a facility, don't want to deal with the things that go with that. So we're, we're available to people on, on multiple levels, I should say. Excellent. And we, um, through my business, which is Lori Williams Senior Services, we work with Lowe and with his communities and um, and send families there. And, and we hear excellent, excellent feedback. So we will also have information on our website and um, you can reach us through lauriewilliams-seniorservices.com. And thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. <music>